And so we started last week a new message series entitled Identity Crisis. Um, you know, we, we were just reminded, I mean, it is um, just unbelievable in this country, the different identity crises that we're dealing with, you know, not being able to tell whether you're male or female, what it means to be a mother, father, employee, teacher, student, I mean, you just name it. Any identity is getting all scrambled and mixed up and challenged, and it's just unbelievable. But even in the church, we deal with this identity crisis. When everything else gets stripped away, who are we at our core? Who are we truly? And that's what we're taking a look at through this series, because we all know how fast things can come and go. Money, I mean, come on, you know, it's here today, gone tomorrow. Um, Your abilities, you know, you've got some awesome sports skills, and all it takes is one wrong stumble, and you can be taken out for a season or for a lifetime. You know, we shape our identity around all these things. A career, you know, you've got a good career. Next thing you know, that industry is like gone because the new president came into office, you know. We shape our identity around so many different things. Relationships, you know, that that I'm just, you know, the the best husband and father ever. And the next thing you know, like whatever, you know, an accident happens, the Lord takes away your family or, you know, um, just infidelity happens or whatever. I mean, we shape our identity around so many temporary things, And we build our lives, and we build the core of who we are on those things. And the reality is, if you're basing your identity on something that can be taken away, you're setting yourself up for, like, the worst depression and and, and falling of a lifetime. And you're missing out on who God truly created you to be. So you do know what God will do from time to time, right? I mean, think about this. Even in the church, even in Pentecostal circles, if you shape your identity around your ability to, to discern, you know, spirits or times or seasons, if you set your identity around being able to bring healing into someone's life or a prophetic word or a word of knowledge, even if you build your life on your spiritual giftings, it's not really who you are. Heaven's going to be a really disappointing place for you because there's no need for healing. There's no sickness or disease, you know. There's no need for being a comforter or encourager because there's no tears in heaven. There's no need for revelation, a word of knowledge or prophecy because we all know everything already. Like, who are you at your core? What is your identity crisis that you're dealing with? Um, We learned last week that there's a huge difference between who you were born to be and who you were created to be. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again or you're going to miss out on the kingdom of God. You might have been born that way, but that's not who you were created to be. There's a a drastic difference between the two, you know. And so we we learned some of those things about how we need to be born again and we need to kind of come away from our flesh because we were born into sin and start coming alive as that new creation born of the Spirit, And so uh, we were challenged to do that and to understand that difference. We were also reminded of that awesome thing, that when you choose to put your faith in Jesus, you choose to follow him, one of the first things that changes for you in your identity is the fact that you are now a child of God. That is something that can never be stripped away from you for all eternity. You will always be a child of God. You've been adopted into his family and that's awesome. It's an awesome reality. And so when you're facing the challenges in this world and when, when you're getting pruned and things are getting stripped away from you and things are getting shaken in your life, we need to start reminding ourselves of who we truly are. First and foremost, we're a child of God. We are royalty. We are princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. You've got an inheritance awaiting you, right? I mean, everything's been given to you. Um, 
And Jesus, you know, we're not the first ones to deal with this. I'd never seen this before. It's an awesome revelation. If, if it's old news to you, then I'm sorry. But it was just so exciting for me to see this. When you start looking at people struggling with their identity, you see it all through the scriptures. And especially in the New Testament with Jesus and his disciples. They weren't getting it. They weren't understanding who they were. Um, take, for example, this. Um, this. This scripture here. In Luke chapter 10. So Jesus sends out his disciples... They have a good old time doing ministry together. He sends them out, you know, in pairs, and man, they're just bringing healing and deliverance, and the enemy's fleeing. They're all excited about it. So they come back to Jesus, and they give this debriefing, and they say this. It says, when the 72 disciples returned, right, because we started with 72 and hundreds more, it says, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. And they still do, by the way, all right? In Jesus' name, there's power, there's authority to make the enemy flee. He said, yeah, I saw heaven, I'm sorry, I saw heaven. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, right? He's given us all the power over the enemy. He said, you can walk among snakes and scorpions, you can crush them. Nothing's going to injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Jesus kind of redirected them. Look, don't rejoice because of what you can do. Rejoice because of who you are. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a member of heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're good to go. Rejoice because of who you are, not because of what you can do. He had to redirect their identity. You know, and sometimes God will do that. He will strip away the things in our lives that we choose to identify with. That I'm this, that, or the other thing. And God's like, no, 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 no. You got, you've got to first understand who you really are. Then we'll build on that. Because you all know what happens to anything, any kind of house that you build on a poor foundation, Right? You're setting yourself up for failure. It's going to crumble and fall. If you build everything on a false identity, and at some point in your life something happens to affect that identity, your whole life is going to fall apart. God doesn't want you to be in that position. He wants you to build on a firm foundation of who he calls you to be. Because you're so much more than any worldly thing that we can identify ourselves with. Not only that, once we realize our full identity, we're unspeakable. Because when you realize who you truly are, nothing can take that away from you. Like you're unstoppable, you're unshakable, you can have confidence. And above all things, I just taught my kids about Philippians, what is it, 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Read the verse right before that, because you're going you're gonna to destroy your life if you, if you think that that's true. I can just do everything through Christ who strengthens me. What did Paul say? I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to be well-fed. I know what it is to be clothed. I know what it is to run around and naked and afraid. I know, you know, he goes through all these things. And then he says, the key to all of this is, I can do all these things, referring to the previous verse, through Christ who gives me strength. You can find contentment. In any circumstance, when you realize your true spiritual identity, who you really are at your core, you can have contentment. Then God can start building. Because Jesus did say some pretty awesome things like this. John 14, 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me 
will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to the Father. You can do even greater things than Jesus did because he went to the Father. And we all know what happened when he went to the Father. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the question is, why is it so difficult for us to understand who we really are? I mean, I don't know about you all, but like when I, especially before I knew Christ, because I didn't really know Christ till I was a teenager, I was pretty geeky and nerdy, and like I got through in trash cans and bushes and thrown in the kid, the boys' locker room and turned the shower on while I sewed all my clothes on. Like, you know, I was a little scrawny, geeky kid who got pushed around quite a bit, you know. I found Christ, and I was a little more confident, and we didn't deal with any of those issues anymore. You know, we put a stop to all that pretty quickly, but... Why do we struggle with that? Because we, we, we're always comparing ourselves to other people. We're always looking at our strength, our, at our weaknesses, and comparing them to someone else's strengths. We're always looking at my lack and what somebody else has in excess. Like, we're always comparing and unhappy and trying to figure out who we are. You know, I'm fat, I'm skinny, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm whatever, you know? I mean, you know, I'll never be able to get that position at my workplace or whatever the case is. We're always comparing ourselves, and we never really have a, the ability to grasp who we are and to just be confident in that, you know? I mean, there's a handful of people, but I think most of us struggle in that, in our real identity, something that can be stripped away. Why is it that we're always tempted to strive to be something we're not? And again, that's what I talked about last week. You know, we can, you can, you know, look down on people that are identifying as something they're not and think that there's something horrifically wrong with them. But the reality is we all struggle with that same core issue. We all try to be something that we were not created to be, right? And we all embrace things that we were born with that are sin and not really God's plan for our lives. What God revealed to me the key, the, the, the key is to this area that we really need to understand and focus on is because of this reality. And it goes back to a war that started while we were still a thought in the mind of God. From the very beginning of our creation, a war was waged, and it was waged against our identity. And that war is not over yet. That's why we still struggle with this so hugely and this is just step one, we're going to go to step two. So stay with me. This is way bigger than, than we realize. We know from Ezekiel 28 that Satan was the most beautiful of all of God's creation. Revelation 12, he, he's called many names, the serpent, the devil, Satan. He's got a bunch of names, all the same dude that we're talking about, right? But if you read Ezekiel chapter 28, you, you, you don't see this, this red-horned, you know, pitchfork, cartoony kind of guy with the tail. You know, well, we see the tail in Revelation, but anyways, in, in Genesis. Um, what we see Satan being described as is the most beautiful thing in all of creation. So if you watch the horror movies and you think he's some scary thing, it's not really who he is in reality. The most beautiful of all of creation. God created everything before he created the heavens and the earth. This dude was awesome. <laughs> I mean, seriously. It says that he became corrupted by pride on account of his great beauty. And what ended up happening in that corruption is he started believing himself to kind of be equal with God. We, we see evidence throughout the scriptures that he was sort of the worship leader in heaven. And he kind of wanted some of that worship for himself, right? He got a little jealous, and he started demanding. I mean, not only, we don't just see inferences of that. If you look at Ezekiel 28, Revelation 14, Matthew chapter 4, Satan demands to be worshipped. 
He wages war against God, and he says, you're going to worship me. You will bow down and worship me. And it gets to the point where you can't even buy, sell, or trade without bowing down and worshiping him, right? And taking his mark. I mean, it gets to that bad in the end times. But God did something interesting in the presence and in the, in the sight of Satan. The most beautiful, this is before he fell. The most beautiful in all creation. And God says, you know what? I'm going to do something really cool. Okay, so I create everything. And then I decided to create, to go down into my creation, get down in the mud, to form this thing, and to breathe my breath of life into him. And create him in my own image. So, we have competition now. You went from being the most beautiful thing in all of creation to being the second most beautiful thing in all creation. Because nothing can be greater than God. And we were created in God's image. So there's a little bit of, I, I, I believe, you know, you can argue with me, it's debatable because it's not black and white in scripture at this point. But I believe he became jealous and that corruption just got that much more intense, right? He then went a step further and he personally walked and communed with mankind. This mud. I mean, think about how offensive that had to be to, to Satan, you know, the most beautiful in all creation. And you just take mud, and then God decides that that's my best friend. I'm going to hang out with them all the time. And, you know, and they're so much lower than Satan, too. I mean, they're just whatever. But, but you just picture this happening. And we know that this all happened at the same time frame because in Revelation chapter 12, it, we read about Satan and a third of the angels literally waging war in heaven. And the reason I put this time frame together, and it's debatable, is because where does Revelation chapter 12 say that Satan got thrown after this war took place? Him and a third of the angels. To the earth. Then the next thing, what do you see in Genesis chapter, what is it, 2 or 3 when the temptation comes? I think it's 3. Um, you see the serpent coming in and tempting Eve. It's the enemy, you know, from the very beginning. He waged war against us. We were created in the image of God. And it is a warship. Like, literally, there's a war about worship. Who's going to be worshipped? The war left heaven, because, remember, Jesus just said, too, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. I mean, you know, these are, you know, it's, I feel it's pretty black and white what happened in the time frames that existed here. So there's this war of worship happening. It left heaven, it entered the Garden of Eden, and it has continued to this day. And it will continue to rage until this is fulfilled in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And again, you probably can't read that from back there, but on my screen, I can see it pretty easily. It says, then the devil who had deceived them, what did he do in the garden? And what does he do to us every day? He deceives us. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus called this place hell. Lake of fiery sulfur, torment forever and ever. Hell was created for Satan and the angels who rebelled in heaven. Can you imagine rebellion in heaven, sin in heaven? But it happened. Now, of course, we know that because we rebel, we, if we don't repent and turn back to Christ to be saved, to be born again, we share the same fate for rebelling against God in the same way. I don't believe hell was created for people, but it's the, the fate that all of us share in until we are born again. But there's war, this, this, this identity being waged, uh, or I'm sorry, there's this war being waged against our identity over the issue of worship. 
And bear with me, I'm going to detail about it here. But this, this, this is just, it's an awesome revelation that will change the way that you think. It should change the way that you actually give praise and worship to him, right? Not just singing and dancing and playing, but just your life laid down. That's true and proper worship. Our lives bowed down, laid down to the will of God. Just, oh, you, man, you, you tick the enemy off like you wouldn't even believe. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Just You drive him up a wall. But why does the devil wage war against our identity? Why does he deceive people so that we don't really see who God truly is and we don't really see who we truly are? Why does he deceive us this way? Why does that matter so much to him? Why is that so important to the enemy? I mean, doesn't he have better things to do than to roam around the earth to and fro, right? We just read in Job, you know, looking to trip people up, uh, you know, to, to get people to question God or to question themselves. Why does he do this? Once we realize God's true identity, you're not going to be able to hold back your worship to him. Once you realize who he is and what he has done for you, you're going to worship him and him alone. And there ain't nobody ever going to stop you from giving all that worship to him. Satan isn't going to get any of it. And if you realize your true identity what Christ has done for you and who he now is creating you to be, your, your worship is going to be extravagant. I mean, once you realize who God is and then what he's done for you and who you are because of that, I mean, you're not going to be able to stop worship. I mean, the Bible talks about this inexpressible joy. Like you're bubbling up inside and you just, you can't even express it. You can't find words, you can't find actions. There's nothing you can do to express how you feel about your God. You know, so, so of course, Satan doesn't want that. He loves it when we worship these things that are created out there. Because it keeps us from worshiping him. If he can't, now in the end times, we know he's going to demand that he gets worshiped literally. But until that's able to happen, for some reason, I think it's a whole lot of crazy Christians, he's not able to get that worship right now. There's going to come a time when he's going to be able to demand it. But until then, he just keeps us all distracted and questioning and deceived so that we're not looking at him and we're not looking at who we are in God, you know, uh, so that we, he doesn't get the worship that he's worthy of. Now, at one point in mankind's history, Satan was given this unbelievable opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. Now, I've tried it before. It's really hard. It's really hard to kill two birds with one stone. Has anybody ever... It's hard to kill two birds with one shotgun, for Pete's sake. I mean, come on. You know? <laughs> really hard. But Satan saw this opportunity. Because what did God do at one point in our history? He wrapped himself in flesh and became fully God and fully man. Two birds with one stone. If he could get Jesus to question his identity... He wins the worship war. We are destined for hell. There's no salvation, right? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. I've been using New Living Translation. Sharon's in the Passion Translation. I'm loving the New Living this year, so that's where I'm going. But listen to this. You've heard this so many times. I don't know if you've ever looked at it this way or thought about it this way. You probably have because I think I preached it before. But Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. So you get this whole crazy theological thing going on right there. Will, will God ever tempt you to sin? No. Will he lead you before the devil to be tempted? Heck yes, he will. Why? Look at Job's case. To prove the enemy wrong. To send him fleeing. 
to prove who you really are and what your faith's really made of. And sometimes it's just to show yourself, I need to work on my faith, you know, for whatever reason. But this is Jesus, God and man fully, was led by the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself. It says, for 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and he became very hungry. You see, our true identity, who we are at our core, is revealed most often through our challenges. Sometimes people don't realize how strong they are until they find themselves in the face of an emergency. They don't realize what they're made of until there's a crisis, and then things are revealed. I've been in cases where there's a group of people around and something tragic happens, you wouldn't believe some of the people who rise up in leadership that you would have never seen that way otherwise. It reveals who we are. Because we can't really know ourselves by ourselves. I can't really fully know who I am all by myself. i got to get around people who are different than me. Then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not like that, but I'm like this. Okay, I'm not a coffee drinker, but um, I'll drink tea, you know. Or, you know, you learn things about yourself through challenges, and these are little things. But you find yourself who you truly are when you get rubbed the wrong way by people and by circumstances. When you're challenged, you realize who you truly are, who you are and who you aren't. Um, This is happening to Jesus right here, right now. He is weak. He's hungry. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say Jesus was irritable, okay? He was was raw man at his weakest point, and the temptation was coming on by the devil himself. His identity was about to be challenged and discovered. In verse 3, it says, During that time the devil came, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. The identity of Jesus. When the devil comes to tempt Jesus, he just goes right for the juggler. He goes for the identity of Christ. If you're really the Son of God. He's, he's questioning And he's causing Jesus to question, am I really the son of God? The same way he tempted Eve. Did God really say that? He he puts these questions in our mind, and he lets our flesh take over from there. That's all that the enemy has to do in our lives, let's be honest. All he has to do is pose me the right question, you know, and I'm gone. No? Like, I won't go into too many details here, but yeah, I mean, he just, he, he gives me a question, that's all it takes, you know. If I don't watch myself and keep those thoughts captive... I'm gone into into sin. In verse 4, it says, But Jesus told him, No! The scriptures say people don't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, realizing who he was. He's like, you know what? We don't live on bread alone. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point in the temple. And remember this. Couldn't get him to eat, so he takes him to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, jump off. The scriptures say he'll order his angels to protect you. They'll hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. I know some of you guys were thinking that, and I said you'll, st- you'll step in snakes and scorpions and not hurt. That doesn't mean go down to Florida and jump in that snake pit and start kicking them around, you know? This is basically what, G, what the enemy just said, to, he's, and he quotes the word of God. If you think the enemy's afraid of the word of God or the presence of God even, he ain't afraid of any of those things. Come on, he was created to dwell in those places. 
So Jesus was tempted to put the word of God to the test and to see if, you know, if the Heavenly Father would allow any injury to come to him. Jesus responded. The scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Again, the full counsel of scripture, not just taking bits and pieces and making it say what you want it to say. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Couldn't get him to question his identity. Couldn't get him to question his identity. So he's just like, okay, I'm just going. This is it. Hail Mary all in for all you Super Bowl fans tonight, you know. This is it. Worship me, I'll give it all to you. And that was Jesus' destiny, right? Man, aren't we always so tempted to take the shortcuts to the promises and prophetic words of God? Jesus chose not to. You know how he responded? Because, I mean, that's really what Satan was longing for the whole time anyways. He wanted worshipped. And if he could get God to worship him, he won the war, the worship war, right? And it's very clear throughout the scriptures what the enemy wants, what Satan wants. He just wants you to not worship God. That, that's like his, like, I'll take that. His pie in the sky, ultimate goal, worship me. I'm beautiful. I deserve it. I mean, guess what he's also going to do in the end times? He's going to heal. He's going to deliver all the false signs, wonders, and miracles. He's going to do them all. And people are going to chew it up and think that he's Jesus and follow and worship him. In fact, in Revelation, it even says that some of God's chosen, some of the elect, will follow him. Even we can be deceived. Crazy times. But he wants worship. So how does God, I love, this is why I love the New Living Translation here in verse 10. Jesus told him, get out of here, Satan. Because the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. So if the devil can get you to question who you are, he wins the worship war. If he gets you to question your true identity and who you are at your core, then he wins. Either way, the worship of God will be incomplete. It'll be lacking zeal and fervor. I mean, take a look around on just a Sunday morning here. Some of us, we just don't got our worship on. And it's usually because we're weighed down with the things of the world and we're, we're thinking those things are bigger than God is. And I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, let's just be honest with each other this morning. My mind is consumed by all these cares, worries, anxieties, and all these things that are happening all around. All these worldly, temporary, earthly things, they're not consumed with my God and who he is. It's not, it's not thinking, okay, well, this is impossible, and this is awful, and this is stealing, killing, and destroying. I'm not thinking, okay, God, what are you going to do here? This is going to be good, right? You know? No, I'm thinking worst-case scenario. That's what our flesh does. You know? My kid calls after they've, you know, they're over there alone at the school or something. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what happened? What's wrong? You know? <laughs> right? We, we think from a worldly, earthly perspective. We don't think with, from a heavenly perspective, right? That's just what we do. Sometimes we just need to be like Jesus. And when those thoughts come on, be like, you know, get out of here, Satan. Just get, get out of here. Get gone. Don't need you. Don't want to listen to you. Remind him of who we are and what his destiny is, right? We know what his destiny is, sulfury lake of fire, and he knows it too. Okay, so the enemy wants us to question our identity so that we don't give God the worship he deserves. Now, as if though that wasn't enough, you know who our God is? He loves to show off. 
He is an extravagant God. He went a step further. Not only did he make us out of mud and breathe the breath of life into us and hang out with us, and he wants to be our best friend, God went a step further. You know, as if just walking in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden wasn't enough to tick off the enemy, he went a step further. As if, like, hearing every prayer, knowing every thought, catching every one of our tears in a jar, as if knowing every number on our, of the hair on our head, if, as if though all of that was not enough, that he didn't intimately know us well enough, he went a step further. As if Satan wasn't jealous enough of us, created in his image and hanging out with him, God went a step further. You are a child of God, but you have another identity too. And it's not one that is often taught about or preached about, but it's one you're going to hear a lot about this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20 says this. Because, right, God chose to pour out his presence into our lives. God chose not just to hang out with us, but to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to baptize us in his presence. How do you think the enemy feels about that? Come on! We are containers of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God dwelling in us. You have another identity as well, and it is this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the presence of God. The temple. And I'm not going to go into all the history, but you've got to check this out. Go back into the Old Testament. Read about the tabernacle that God had Moses build as a place for his presence to dwell. Read about Solomon's temple. Remember, David wasn't even allowed to build the temple. He wasn't good enough. He, we had to wait till Solomon came around and read about the temple of the Holy Spirit that God gave him to build, what it was constructed of. I mean, it was made of this high-grade stone, and all this stone was chipped away, way far away, and brought into the temple. It is the quietest construction site in history. Why so all that loud racket wouldn't be there? Because it would distract from the glory of God and the worship of him. It was built with these huge cedar boards, juniper flooring and panels. It was finished with ornate details, all carved into silver, or I mean all carved into uh, cedar. Did I say cedar or silver? Cedar. And then it was overlaid with gold. I mean this thing had probably literally pounds, tons of gold. Probably literally tons. We don't know for certain, but it had to be. Because everything was overlaid with gold. Even the temples that they used to cut up the animals, you know, were overlaid with gold. I mean, this place was unbelievable. Nations were jealous of it. That's why they always wanted to come and steal everything away. Um, and, and not to mention all the, 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 the jewels and whatnot. I mean, it was amazing. And then on the outside, there are all sorts of bronze decorations and pillars. I mean, just everything is, there's, in fact, actually, yes, the Bible does literally say that there is so much gold and bronze used in the construction of the temple that it could not be weighed. They had no way to weigh it. There was so much. I mean, it's just an amazing place. In fact, one day when Jesus and his disciples were walking along and they went by the temple, and this was the second temple, we'll get into that, they said this. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, that was it. 
It says some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, with gifts dedicated to God. Because not only was this temple built, you know, uh, decades ago, but over the course of those decades, people were bringing their treasures into the temple treasury. And this place just, man, it was just years and decades in the building. And it was just so beautiful, so glorious. And, of course, we know what Jesus said, you know, don't think anything about this, you know. All those things, the Bible tells us, were a shadowing of what's actually in the kingdom of heaven. So God was very specific about the building of the tabernacle, how it was supposed to be constructed, what it was going to look like, all the materials and the skill and the time. In fact, it was so glorious that God had to fill someone at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament before Jesus came just so they'd have the, the level of woodworking and, and metalworking and blacksmithing, just so they'd have the skill to be able to create it. They couldn't even create it on their own without the filling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was that ornate and beautiful and glorious. It was a place where God dwelt. It was a place of worship. It was a place of sacrifice. That's where things happen. That's where you had an encounter with God. That's where you went to worship and to pray and to make your sacrifices for your sin. That's where you went to do all those things. Then God turned around and said, none of that was good enough. You are more valuable than that tabernacle or either one of the temples. You are more valuable to him than that. He chose you is that place to fill his presence with. The moment that Jesus chose to give his life for you and to place a value on your life, this happened. The veil was torn. Matthew 27, verse 51 through 54, at that moment, as soon as Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit, as soon as he chose, he chose, he chose willingly to give up his life. The consequences are sin or death. Jesus never sinned. Jesus would have never naturally died. Jesus gave his life. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He chose to give up his life. And in that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this thing was like, I think, four inches thick, like insane. But that curtain had one purpose and one purpose only, to keep man separated from the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt. In fact, only one person, the great high priest, was allowed to go into that place only once a year. And when he went in, they tied a rope around his foot. Because if he didn't make the proper preparations to purify himself from all of his sin and unworthiness, before he went into the presence of God, he would die instantly. And it happened. Then he chose me. I mean, think about how unworthy, how unclean we are. He chose to tear that veil from top to bottom. There is no longer anything that separates us from Christ. Nothing can stand in the way of God's presence filling our lives. And he chose us. He chose us to fill with his presence. It's just amazing. Amazing. And this is what happened. It said the bodies, this, is, just, this blows me away. This is just mentioned briefly like it's no big deal and we continue on. But I have to read this part. It says, then the earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs were broken open. The bodies of many holy people who had died before he was raised to life, they came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection. And they went around in the holy city and they appeared to many people. Like uh, just Elijah, Elijah, they're just hanging out with people. And hey, how's it going, you know, in Jerusalem. It, just, it would have been so crazy. Like, uh, anyways, it just blows my mind. But this is the point. In verse 54, when the centurion 
and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and everything that happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Identity! Identity! The enemy, are you really the Son of God? And then when all this happens, people are like, you really are the Son of God. And Jesus, who asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Identity, 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 identity. If we realize who we are in Christ, the high price that was paid for us, and the fact that we are the temple of God. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Man, would we see ourselves differently. Man, would we have different expectations in our lives and for our lives. We wouldn't settle for earthly things. We wouldn't settle for sin anymore. You know, I don't need to go do this, that, and the other thing because they don't really fulfill me anyways. You know what fulfills me? The very presence of God. He gives me everything I need. What does the Bible say? He satisfies our desires with good things. That bring life and not death. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. He just goes through and quotes the Old Testament over and over again. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That comes from Leviticus 26, 12, Jeremiah 32, 38, Ezekiel 37, 27. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Isaiah 52, 11, Ezekiel 20, verse 34, and again in verse 41. And I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 14, chapter 7, verse 8, and, and I could go on and on and on and on. But Paul chose to quote those, those handful of Old Testament you know, uh, quotes so that we would realize who we are. This has been prophesied, and now it is fulfilled. This was promised, and now it is coming to pass. You are a child of God. You are a temple of the living God. Don't settle for lesser things. God has chosen you to not just dwell with, but to dwell within, to fill your life with the Holy Spirit. God has chosen you to host his very presence. It used to just hang out on the mercy seat, in the, in the Holy of Holies, in the innermost parts of the temple. And now it fills you. It's amazing, this reality. This is what God said regarding the second temple that was built after Solomon's was destroyed by, I think it was the Babylonians, right? They came in, destroyed it, stole everything. Um, <laughs> if you want to read a fun story, read about the Ark of the Covenant. After it was stolen from Solomon's temple, all the different, uh, you know, the paths that it took and the towns that it landed in, nobody wanted to be near that thing. It gave, at one point, it gave the whole town hemorrhoids, Okay. <laughs> Because it wasn't where it was supposed to be. Like, okay, God, I just pictured, God has a sense of humor, come on. What's it going to take to get these people to put me back where I belong? Oh, I got a good one. <laughs> I got a good one. Man, I'm going to be a pain in their butt. I'm going to give them all hemorrhoids. Then they'll put me back in the temple, right? <laughs> Sorry. You don't want to read the Bible with me and share my honest thoughts of what I'm thinking while I read it. <laughs> But come on, prove me wrong. Is that not what happened? Come on. <laughs> but this, this, is what, this is what was said about the temple, the second temple after Solomon's was destroyed. 
And I believe that this was a prophetic word about you personally. Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing at all? But be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jodizak, the high priest. They were the ones that were chosen to rebuild the temple. And he knew it looked, that was the Lord speaking. It looks nothing like the, the, the temple of Solomon, but it's going to be rebuilt. Don't you just love that? God allowed his own temple to be destroyed, but he had plans to rebuild. When he allows you to be torn apart and to be chipped away, he's just pruning and he's going to rebuild you stronger, healthier, more fruitful than ever. That's exactly what happened here. He says, be strong, all you people in the land, declares the Lord, and work. (laughs) Be strong and get to work. Because I'm with you, declares the Lord. And this is what I've covenanted with you. When you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you still, so do not fear. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. In a little while, don't, don't get this wrong, but in the Lord, a little while to him is a long while to me. Like, I think every single time it's always a, a long while. But anyways... In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord God Almighty. The silver's mine, the gold's mine. It's all mine, declares the Lord God Almighty. Then the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord God Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord God Almighty. Now I know that that was said about the second temple, about how the glory would be greater than the previous temple. But the God that I know, he goes from glory to glory to glory to glory. Like, you know, he's always building and improving, always extravagant. I believe that the glory here in this temple is even greater than the glory of that temple that caused the disciples, because that second rebuilt temple by Zerubbabel and whatever his name is, uh, Joshua, um, that's the temple that they were gawking at, and they're like, wow, that thing's awesome, you know, Jesus is like, that is nothing. Why? Because he chose to fill you with his presence, and now his temple is everywhere, where you walk, you're very, at the very tip of your toes, that's the place where heaven meets earth. That's the place where common mankind comes into the encounter with the Holy of Holies. This is the place where the presence of God dwells. It's amazing to think about. It's unfathomable to think about that God chose us to be a temple of his presence. The glory of God. It's greater in the current temple than it is in the former. We're going from glory to glory to glory. And and now we don't have to go to some physical temple in Jerusalem, you know, and, and sojourn on a journey or whatever, you know, to encounter the presence of God. You carry the presence of God with you everywhere. You take the presence of God with you into your workplace, into your school, into your house. And it shakes some things up. Only so it can make things right. 
And so I just want to challenge you this morning. Stop thinking so lowly of yourself. When you, when you start to question, because we want to question this throughout this series, who am I really? I mean, who, who really am I at my core? What, what is my name? What am I like? What am I not like? I don't know who I am, and I'm ashamed of who I am. Don't let those thoughts consume you. Instead, replace those thoughts with the truth of what God says about you. You are a child of God. You are highly valued. You were worth sacrificing his own son for. And Jesus looked at you and said, you're worth giving up my own life for. You are highly valued and treasured. Read through the tabernacle, the first temple, the second temple. Read through how those were created and the, and the, the precious stones and, and woods and, and everything that was used to construct that temple. And God says, you are more valuable than those. You are more worthy to house my presence than those things. That's what God's truth says about you. And you know what? It's okay. Make the devil jealous. Make him wish he was anything like you. Because he is the second most beautiful of all creation. You know who the number one beautiful creation is? You. You. You are created in the image of God. You house the Holy Spirit. You are a temple of God. You are more beautiful than Satan himself. And man, does it get him. Man, does it make him jealous. And if you determine to give him worship because of who he is and because of who you are, don't think the enemy is going to sit back and let it happen, right, Terry? You're not going to sit back and just let it happen. He's going to be all over you trying to stop it from happening. But you know what? Greater is who? He who is in me, because I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, than he, Satan, devil, the serpent, the dragon, whatever you want to call him, who is out there in the world, right? He's greater. And so he might keep you down for a season, but you're not down permanently. That's not your destiny. That's not your destination, right? You are a temple of God. I mean, I just, I just want to say it a thousand times over because I don't even understand it yet, but I want to understand it. And I want to believe that about myself. I don't right now. I, I see all of my flaws and all my issues and all my weaknesses. And I, I see every single time that I sin and blow it. But God doesn't see those things. He sees something beautiful and precious. He sees something holy that has been set apart for his presence. He sees something awesome. So I know nobody probably knows this song. But we're going to end with just a song of worship, a song of praise. Just, just, I just challenge you this morning and throughout the course of this week, and I, I encourage you to even read about those temples in the tabernacle, but, but really let that soak in about who you are. You are a child of God, and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? A temple of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. There's so many other scriptures that, that, that confirm that. Just They say that truth. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's just enter in, Lord. Wow, God, we are just overwhelmed by this fact that your word says about us. You went so much further than you had to go, Lord. It was enough that you laid down your life. It was enough that you forgave me of all my sin. But now, Jesus, you chose to pour out your Holy Spirit 
baptizing me in your presence, Lord. It is overwhelming. You call me a temple of your Holy Spirit. You chose my body to be the holy of holies. So holy, so set apart, Lord. Lord, you know I'm not worthy, but I praise you for making me worthy. I praise you, Jesus, for purifying me of all my sin, of all my unrighteousness, for creating in me a pure heart, God, because you know how corrupt it truly is. Jesus, keep doing your work. Holy Spirit, keep leading me. Keep changing me into a new creation. Keep setting me free from these traps I keep finding myself in through my sin. Oh, thank you, God, for choosing me as your Holy Spirit. Choosing me as a temple. Lord, help me to live like it. Help me not to settle for lesser things, the things of this world. Help me to settle only for your best for me. In your name, amen.